This is Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. As President Obama's secretary to the cabinet, Broderick Johnson is one of those folks in the White House you've probably never heard of, but who wields enormous power. I mean, it's not my role to say to a cabinet secretary, don't do X, right? But at the same time, give him some pretty strong advice about the implications of doing X, if you know what I mean. From his West Wing office, Johnson talked about how he met his boss and his experience working on My Brother's Keeper, the president's signature program, and perhaps Johnson's proudest achievement. And you can hear all about it right now. Roderick Johnson, thanks very much for being on K-Pop. Thank you. It's great to be here. So your title here is Cabinet Secretary. Yes. And I bet a lot of people don't even know, one, that the ti- that this position exists, and two, if they do know the position exists, they don't know exactly what the Cabinet Secretary does, but the position is very important. Yes. So I have several other titles. Oh. <laughs> uh, I'm Assistant to the President which means I'm among the senior most uh, advisors here for the president. Uh, So I get in all sorts of discussions around lots of different issues. Second, cabinet secretary. So the cabinet secretary manages the relationship between the president and the cabinet and vice versa. Everything from interagency policy discussions to when the president's going to meet with a member of the cabinet, briefing the president, helping prepare that cabinet member so he or she can have a fruitful conversation with the president, um, organizing the larger formal cabinet meetings. So it's all those elements. um, And it's daily and weekly managing of those relationships between the president and the cabinet. So for the incoming administration, and maybe even for your own, um, the person who will follow you, what's the one or two pieces of advice you would have for them uh, to do this job effectively? To really develop relationships with the cabinet members themselves very directly to, because then you can have candid conversations with them that other people couldn't have. It's as though if you were secretary so-and-so were to call the president directly and say, hey, I have this idea or I have this issue, um, that they're basically talking to the president and you need to be in a position to get that candor and to be trusted, right, to deliver the message straight on both sides. All right, deliver the message from the president to the cabinet, and vice versa. Se- to the secretary, and, and, and vice, vice versa. versa. So yes. that requires an incredible amount of trust on behalf of the president. Have you had a situation where you just, like, the trust just wasn't there, the relationship just was not right? In ter- I'm thinking in terms of the secretaries where it was just difficult no, to get I, messages through. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that. I would say, though, there have been you know, sensitive moments where the message to be delivered was not necessarily a message that the cabinet secretary may have wanted to hear. And, you know, either because, you know, this thing you're planning to do, you need to put on hold um, or at least think twice about it. I mean, it's not my role to say to a cabinet secretary, don't do X, right? But at the same time, give them some pretty strong advice about the implications of doing X, if you know what I mean. But I mean, if you if you go to a cabinet secretary and say, don't do X or put X on hold or something like that, I mean, you are coming into this meeting at, basically as the the voice of the president. Yes. Have you had a situation where someone basically said, 
<laughs> forget you then. I hear what you're saying. I'm going to do it anyway. I haven't had that happen, no. I think that the most important message that I can convey and that is heard is think about the implications of what it is that you're thinking about or doing for the president and for this administration. And things have turned out quite well. This is another one of the situations where I wish we had a video camera <laughs> because he sounds very nice and very, you know, warm, welcoming face. But I can just imagine in some of these candid conversation meetings that you make it crystal clear to folks that I'm a nice guy, but if I need to be an enforcer, I'm going to be the enforcer. I have to say, though, Jonathan, this this president's cabinet is extraordinary and extraordinarily loyal and very much aware throughout the time I've been here of what the president's priorities are and how what it is that they do fits within the president's priorities uh, or not. Mm -hmm. And um, that's been among the most rewarding aspects of this job is to see how people are so committed to being loyal members of the cabinet to this president, ultimately, ultimately to the country. When did you meet the president the first time? 2003. 2003. He was still state senator then? He was state senator Barack Obama. A wonderful, wonderful friend we all miss deeply. Cassandra Butts, um, who just passed away this past May, uh, was a mutual friend. Sometime that year, she came to me and said, I have this friend uh, who's a state senator in Illinois, and he's going to run for the U.S. Senate. And I told him I would help him meet some people. And so she said, would you meet with him? And I was at AT&T at the time. I said, sure. Sure, I'll meet with the brother. So I remember just being, you know, really struck by him and said, well, yeah, this guy could win that Senate seat, couldn't he? So let me figure out how it could be helpful. And did you think at any point while sitting there, wow, not only could he win that Senate seat, but this guy could go all the way. He could be president. I'd say it first hit me in 2004 at his Boston Convention speech. And the speech was just so powerful. Right. And I, I was the there. only one who came from that thinking, wow, U.S. Senate. OK. And by then, I think it was pretty clear he was going to win the Senate seat, but he could go much further. I was in the hall that night and just remembering the roof being blown off when he gave that speech. Yeah, yeah that's right. And so let's fast forward. So now he's president, President Obama. Mm -hmm. um, when did you first come into the into the administration? Uh, February of 2014, February 18th, 2014. I will almost make it to three years. So you came right on in as uh, cabinet secretary and being the voice of the president and the voice of the cabinet for the president. Yes. And I so much wanted to work for him, but it had to be the right position and the right circumstances. So it took some time to be in a position for that to happen. But it was perfect in 2014 because I wanted to have a unique role. I'd worked in the Clinton White House and had done legislative affairs. And I wanted to, if I came into this White House, to do something different. And then second, to lead the My Brother's Keeper effort for him as well. Which is a signature effort by the president to turn the spotlight of the nation and the government, turn its attention to young African-American men and boys and what they were dealing with and going through. And correct me if I'm wrong, this MBK, as it's called for short. Quite affectionately. Right. Yes. Um, grows out of the situation with the killing of, of Trayvon Martin. Well, I would say it was that um, the president had been, and I'd had conversations with him before Trayvon Martin, you know, what could he do 
as president to use his bully pulpit and his convening power and his power and authority as president over federal agencies to really move the needle and to start to do something more transformative to affect the lives of boys and young men of color, brown and black boys especially. Uh, so we had talked about those things certainly over time and shared those concerns as two African-American men who grew up kind of in the same time under similar circumstances, had many friends along the way and family members who perhaps hadn't made it, uh, certainly to the kind of pinnacles of opportunity that we had, his being the ultimate one of being mm -hmm. president, but for me to be able to do the things that I've been able to do. But without question, when Trayvon Martin was killed and then there was a trial, it was at that moment he decided, I need to do this and do this now. And talk about MBK. What's the overall goal and what is the hope for the future? Because as you, we're, in, we're coming to the end of the administration. Yeah. What happens after that? Well, so MBK, as uh, idealized by the president, was always to be more than a project or program. It was to be movement-oriented, right? And that's what we've seen. It's become a national movement. So, Jonathan, let me indulge a bit on the significance of both symbol and substance of where the president launched MBK. Civil Rights Act of 1964 was signed in the East Room of the White House on July 2nd, 1964, right? And that was to eliminate de jure racism, right? And, and then we would go from there to have opportunities created. And now over 50 years, right, how much progress has been created? Well, some, clearly, but these very stubborn disparities have existed for, for decades since then. So the symbolism is almost 50 years to the day, the president, this president stood in the East Room of the White House and signed a presidential memorandum establishing My Brother's Keeper to really build on the opportunity promise of the 1964 Civil Rights Act and to also tear down the barriers that have existed and to do it in a different way than has been done before. Comprehensive, focused on data and evidence, um, to have stakeholders get engaged in ways that they had not been engaged before, public and private. So very transformative. But the fact that it was almost 50 years to the day, how did it happen that it was 50 years and under this president that MBK came to be? And it wasn't like we planned it to happen in the 50th anniversary year of the 64 Act. But as I reflect on it, it's pretty quite symbolic. In terms of the, the symbolism, maybe it was that it had, to have, it had to have been this president, given who he is, that MBK came to be. Symbolically, though, is there a concern that once the first African-American president, once he leaves, that all of the energy and passion and focus that came through him and into MBK will leave this building on January 20th, 2017, along with him? Well, I think because he will be leaving this building and will be leaving this building and people who've been leading this effort and the agencies will be leaving, clearly the energy will, in a sense, move. But this was always anticipated, right? We knew there wasn't going to be a third term, right? So the president was always clear. He wanted to make sure that we built MBK from the federal government, but using the local government authorities, engaging public and private sector in ways so this would live on. What about the, the criticism that 
this is focused on men and boys, but what about the girls? Um, as we prepare to leave here, and I was very sensitive to those criticisms, certainly from the beginning, because of my own background, raised by a very strong mother, two very strong sisters, but also a wife and a daughter uh, who mattered deeply to me as well. So I felt a little stung by some of that criticism. But I feel like we have been able to convince many of the people who were critics of it of a couple things. One, um, MBK could never be exclusive by race and gender because from the federal government, from the White House, because the Constitution wouldn't allow us to do that. It wouldn't be the right thing to do anyway to be so exclusive. But we've been able to focus on where the disparities are the greatest, right, that affect the lives of boys and young men of color because without question, demographically, they are most challenged around major disparities in education and employment. But we have made sure that every program in MBK, in this movement MBK, that every program, everything that's been done, can help all kids. So the MBK work going on helps all children, right, from the standpoint of what we can do federally. Second, though, without question, we need boys and young men to be stronger so that they and to be more productive so that they can contribute to their families, to their communities, to this society, economically and otherwise. Um, so it is in the best interest of this country that boys and young men of color do better. And third, we've seen more support for the efforts of the Council on Women and Girls and the work that Valerie Jarrett and the First Lady have done because such a spotlight has been put on children of color generally, not just boys and girls. You know, um, looking at the roster of things that have been accomplished under MBK and um, regulations and policies that have been uh, advanced as a result of this, mm-hmm. when it comes to regulations in particular, I mean, those, they're not law. They can, the next administration can come in and change them. You know, one in particular, and I'm only pulling this out um, because it's, it's here in front of my face, but it made me think of it as I was going through this. Um, it's the uh, um, a U.S. Department of Education regulation under Part B of the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. And here it says it, that this will address a number of issues related to significant dispro- disproportionality mm-hmm. in the identification, placement, and discipline of students with disabilities based on race or ethnicity. And that leapt out at me because I remember growing up, and this was when we lived in Hazlitt, New Jersey, so predominantly white town in central New Jersey. And I remember my mother saying to me on the very first day of school, she said, don't let them put you in a special ed class. If they try to do that, you let me know. Um, they didn't try it, although they did seat me in the wood shop for homeroom. But that's a whole other thing. I'm not bitter. <laughs> um, but... You know, to, to my mind, this, the regulation that I just read is very important because a lot of children of color are yes. shunted into those, into those classrooms. And because this is a regulation, my concern is once the Obama administration is out, how easy will it be for the incoming administration to say, you know what, we're not doing that anymore. How easy will it be to undo all of these things? Sure. Well... Uh, regulations have the force and effect of law, right? It's, uh, and it takes either a reversal, as it would if Congress were to look at a law, as it presumably it will it's, you know, and does, and repeals a law, that takes an effort. In the same way regulations do as well. So it's not like the next administration can come in and say, okay, 
we'll repeal that regulation. There's a whole process that will have to be involved. And this is where it will be important for so many communities and stakeholders that we've gotten engaged around MBK-related issues to step up and to engage with the Department of Education if there's an effort to repeal that. But it's not like they can just come in and say, that's that, right? So people have an opportunity procedurally to fight those kinds of changes. How confident are you that folks will rise up if an effort is made to undo these regulations. And I ask that because we've just come through an election where I am still hearing from people about how they've stopped watching the news, they're demoralized, they don't know what's going to happen. And when you've got that cascading effect, when it comes time to really like hunker down and fight for to protect the things that they care about, I'm not sure folks have it in them to do it. Do, do you share that view? Do you share that same concern? I am concerned because people will have to engage. But I'm hopeful because of what I've seen across the country. Because MBK is not just like a convening of a group of people. They have built infrastructures in these communities out of mayor's offices, nonprofits. I think and I'm very, very hopeful that that will be sustained because it is a movement. I mean, people have taken their existing programs, and they have now made them MBK uh, labeled, which means that they really believe that there's something else going on here that is largely driven by how much they believe the president will continue to do this work, as he has said he will. MBK is, I think, emblematic of the president's approach to dealing with issues uh, of race. And one of the criticisms of the president that really angers me is that the president hasn't done anything for black people. The president doesn't talk about race enough. From your perspective, what do you think of that? So it's an unfair criticism. This president, through so many things, has made a difference for people of color, whether it's the approach he's taken to improving the economy. And we've seen, therefore, such decrease and the unemployment rate among African-Americans, or certainly around signature Obamacare and the numbers of millions of African-Americans who now have health care that didn't have it before. But then specific to MBK, you know, the president will say, look, we don't need to have a bunch of forums to talk about the problems in our communities. And if we were having, therefore, a series of MBK forums around the country and people got together and they talked they had summits, but they didn't have plans for going forward, and they weren't moving the needle, and they couldn't show it. He would say, that's not what I envisioned with MBK. And folks realize that. So we're seeing real action on the ground. So the criticism is unfair. <clears throat> Look, the voice for the impact is the young men that are involved in the MBK programs who spoke last week or who were with the president in New Orleans back around Katrina uh, and who are in Detroit and Baltimore. They'll tell you it's made a difference. And those aren't just anecdotes, but you can point to thousands and thousands of young people in Detroit or Baltimore or in Fulton County, Georgia, who can say MBK has changed the trajectory of their lives. Have you been in the room with the president when he's talked with these young men? Um, among the most remarkable moments for me working for this president has been to be in a room when he's had those conversations. First of all, um, he will insist on being able to have those conversations, right? So these are pretty candid conversations where he wants to hear from all of them, and then he'll give them some sense of how that connects. Their own lives connect to things that happen to him. 
But there's one in particular that really stands out I want to share with you. And this young man introduced the president last week, actually, at the, at the last convening. Young man by the name of Malachi. Malachi is from Boston, but he was with us at the MBK Alliance launch in May of 2015. The president gave remarks. Before that formal speech, the president met with a group of young men, including Malachi, who I think was 17 at the time. Malachi asked the president, um, first of all, the president said, asked Malachi, what can we do as adults better for you? And Malachi said, just show us more love, right? So that has an impact on, on you when you hear a young man say that, and the president gets it. Um, but then the president asked Malachi, um, or Malachi asked the president, I'm sorry, how did you get to be a good father, Mr. President, given that you barely had time with your father in your own life, uh, and didn't that hurt you a lot? And the president was very, very candid, as he always is in these meetings. He said, look, yeah, it, it hurt to not grow up with my father, but I was determined to break the cycle, and that when I became a dad, I would be a good and loving dad. Malachi, when's the last time that you talked to your father? And I'm paraphrasing this, but Malachi said it's been a couple of years because, you know, my father abandoned us when I was younger and I haven't heard from him. And the president said, well, why don't you try to find your dad? Because you should have a relationship with your father and you should also know what drove your father to make the decisions he did to abandon the family um, because you shouldn't repeat those cycles. We need to break those cycles. Make a long story short, Malachi is now a a freshman at Northeastern University in Boston. He's one of the co-leaders at the youth level of MBK Boston, and uh, he is going to see his father uh, in a couple weeks. This is right, real. This is true. The president gave that advice. The young man followed up, and now he can repeat the story that the president gave him to all of his peers who are in similar circumstances, and there are far too many. I mean, that speaks to the power of one man. Yes. Um, and I don't know if a lot of people who aren't African-American or a person who um, is some kind of other or who has felt the sting of being an other, what that does to someone. Just hearing the words coming out of his mouth can be enough to spur someone. Yes. Um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking back to a conversation um, that we had in a podcast interview with um, Lucia McBath, the mother of Jordan Davis, and Dewan Patterson, who runs his own community group in Baltimore. And I met them when I hosted, moderated this panel at the Center for American Progress. And the mother of the victim of gun violence and a young man who's a victim of gun violence, and he said something so profound this entire in that entire interview was profound but he said something that just stopped me it, it took my breath away is he was talking about how african-american men are are told to suppress their emotions to not get angry to not show any kind of emotion whatsoever and then he said how what was it how can i live when I'm dying inside just to stay alive. Hmm. And it was just so, it just sent a chill through me then, it sends a chill through me now, but it's also very true. It is very true. Uh, I believe 
another great lesson from this president to African-American boys and young men, too, is it's okay to show your emotion. It's okay to show that you feel either good or bad, happy, sad about something, because he does it himself. What's the part you're going to miss the most? You know, I, uh, I have had you know, wonderful stages in my career. I've been able to do things that, you know, wonderful achievements I couldn't have imagined that have made a difference for people. And after this, I hope to continue to make a difference. But it's going to be hard to imagine ma matching how consequential this job is and, um, and to work for this transformative president and this great man. I will miss that. And so I need to take a lot of time off to get myself ready for the adjustment <laughs> to that because it will be hard. And also the colleagues, these are like the smartest most dedicated folks who make great sacrifices um, for each other and for their families um, to serve the country. I'll miss it immensely. And you are, in addition to this big fancy job that you have, you are also the husband to Michelle Norris. Yes, that's pretty consequential too. Yeah, I mean, you know, fellow, she's a great, <laughs> great journalist, fellow journalist. Um, how has she been through all of this? Because given the job that you have, it's been like, what, two years, three years of, of nonstop work on your part? Uh, she's been great with it. She has, you know, uh, nothing but great admiration and respect for the President and First Lady, too. So that has uh, made a big difference. And she understands it's coming to an end and that it wouldn't last forever. So, but still, the day-to-day -day sacrifices have been something that she's been really quite remarkable around. Our children, though, um, who are now 17 and 16, how they have dealt with this has just been so moving. Because there are times when they just haven't seen me for important events. I've tried to make as many as possible over these years, and the president certainly encourages that. And, but nevertheless, well, you know, Jonathan, one thing I've seen in our kids that I think is the case with so many other African-American kids um, that people don't talk about a lot, particularly kids who, whose parents, you know, give them all sorts of opportunities to go to great schools and have great opportunities to visit the White House and whatever else. They don't take that for granted, and they work really hard. I mean, our kids uh, are like so many other kids I've gotten to know through uh, whose parents work here. They work like crazy in school and to achieve it they don't expect anybody to give them anything the president so often talks about you know we have to work hard and sometimes people have criticized him saying it's the boots pick yourself by your own mm -hmm. bootstraps thing but no he's such he and the first lady have set such a great example that has affected even how our kids who have so much already regard themselves as having a responsibility to their parents and to the world to work hard. That is like, wow. You know, there's that no slipping even by. You? I mean, they, they just like don't let up in the sense that they just work to achieve so much to like stand on the shoulders of not just their parents, but it's like they know that their grandparents and their great grandparents gave them a set of opportunities through the generations they need to take advantage of. And again, they look at this president and first lady, and I think this is the case with millions of children, by the way, across the country, 
black and brown and other children, all kids, I think, they look at this president first lady and they see how hard they've worked. And that's a standard that these kids want to live by. It's true. It's real. You know, that's a great thing. Great legacy. Broderick Johnson, cabinet secretary to President Barack Obama. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. You know what? Do me a favor. Subscribe and then rate and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. Capehart J.